Good to see y'all. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Rob Urbanic. I'm the worship pastor here at LifePoint, and PG has asked me to give us our talk for this morning. And as always, it's a pleasure, a joy, and a privilege uh, to be in front of you this morning. So thank you for having me. You are now my captive audience. Not my captive. All right, so the, according to the latest research by the American Association of Psychiatry, uh, just over one-third of Americans currently suffer from some sort of sleep deprivation. Okay? Now, we get around somewhere around six hours of sleep a night. And I know that's not like really shocking news to many of you, but I want you to compare that to the year 1910 when the average American just got over about nine hours of sleep a night. Okay, they knew how to do it back then apparently. Um, so that means that in the last 100 years we've, left, we've lost about 30% of our sleep. And contrary to what you might think, it was actually the 45 to 54 year olds, uh, that age group took home the prize for getting consistently the least amount of sleep. Now, research shows that our lack of sleep has a tremendous effect on our ability to manage things like physical pain, but also emotional trauma, such as busyness and stress, anxiety, and depression, where it's estimated that just over 18% of the American population suffer from some form of anxiety disorder. Now, and even inside those people, 75% of those also suffer from a chronic lack of sleep. And so we see this lack of sleep as this common denominator. And so if the lack of rest so clearly shows that it's linked to the problems that we're facing, what can we do to add a level of balance back into our lives? And so the reason why I ask this is because right now we are barreling into the holiday season. And if you're anything like me, at some point in the next five weeks, I want to hit a big eject button, right? And just get me out of this mess. Okay, it's we've got, it's sort of like, have you ever gone on like a summer vacation and you come back and you throw all your stuff in the living room or on the couch and then you just collapse on your bed or couch and you're trying really hard not to say the words, man, I need a vacation. Okay, have you ever done that? It's like you took a vacation, but it didn't hit the spot. That wasn't what you needed. What you needed was rest. What you got was a big stress mess vacation, right? So, so now in the holidays, we hear things like this. We have a Black Friday sale. We have Cyber Monday. We've got to open on Christmas Day. We have a family obligation over here, Christmas dinner over here. We've got a rehearsal over here, concert over here, and it just, whoa. It gets to be way too much. It's like the little boxes on our calendar are saying one thing, like rest, be with family, enjoy. And then the culture and the economy are saying the exact opposite. And so with those two conflicting messages, how are we supposed to respond? How are we supposed to navigate this? So I think we can all agree that right now we're living in a culture that has either forgotten or severely undervalues the value of rest, right? And so that's my question for us this morning is how can we as 21st century Americans reclaim a right understanding of rest? How can we go forward into these holiday seasons and celebrate that time with our family and friends in a way that honors God in how we rest and how we celebrate. And I didn't realize it at the time, but as I tried to answer that question, I didn't realize that I had stumbled upon probably one of the most prominent themes in the entire Bible, okay? It is literally on the first page all the way to the very end. It's way too big a concept to cover in one Sunday. But if you'll bear with me, we're gonna hit some of the highlights and see how we can wrap a few, I don't know, lassos around this huge concept of God's rest and pull it down into ways that we can apply into our daily lives, okay? Will you pray with me real quick? Um, God, we come before you this morning uh, with reverence to your word. 
with reverence to what you try to, what you say to us. And so I pray that you will open our eyes, our minds, and our lives to the wonders of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. All right, so as we open up with this idea of rest, I just need to say something from the very outset. I am terrible at this. I am so bad at this. Those who know me the best know that I am the worst, right? It was even just these la- in these last few weeks, I'm working on this sermon. It's late at night. All the kids are in bed, everyone. And my wife, Becca, stumbles into the living room, her eyes at half-mast, and she does the, are you coming to bed soon? Okay, and I go, not now, honey. I'm working really hard on this sermon on rest. <laughs> and I was like, that's a clever trap, honey. Good job. Okay, it's like a... All right, I just shut the laptop, and it's like, coming. Okay, okay. She knows how to set the best traps. All right, so I am coming before the Scriptures just like you, praying that God show me, teach me the rhythms and the patterns to where I can put rest into my life as well. So let's go ahead and open up with our first question. Our first question is this, how should we understand rest? Now, since most of our time is going to be in the books of Genesis and Exodus, um, I've taken these two Hebrew ideas of the word rest, and I've kind of boiled it down to the verbs. The verbs are the things that we can actually do so we can start to incorporate that into our lives. Now, the first word is by far the most prominent, and it's this idea called, it's the word called Shabbat. Okay, I know y'all use that on a weekly basis. Have you Shabbated today? Okay. Um, Shabbat is where we get the word Sabbath, okay? And I really wish we could go into this word deeper because there's so many. It's just loaded with this imagery and symbolism and um, these little hyperlinks to where it takes you to different spots in all the, the best points of redemptive history. But for right now, let's just boil it down to the simple. Shabbat means stop. Okay? Cease. Red light. Don't move. Okay? We get the idea. It means stop. But underneath that idea of stop are also things, are also ideas of like fullness, completion, and most especially the number seven. All of those words are formed with the same three letters in the Hebrew alphabet, okay? They just have different vowels that go in and out of them. And so they're kind of like middle school girls. They're really, you can't have one without the other, okay? They're just always traveling in these little packs, right? Um, And it's it's the same thing. It's the same thing. So all these words, when you see the word Sabbath or stop, you're also getting the number seven. You're also getting fullness, completion, and rest. Okay? So Sabbath, stop. Shabbat, stop. Um, Now the second word we see is the word nuach. Okay? Nuach is where Noah's name comes from. His name is nuach. Okay? It It means to rest, to settle in, to spread out, to enjoy. Okay, And we actually still use this idea in common culture. If someone has moved into town or moved into a new church, you say, well, how are y'all, what, settling in, right? Have y'all settled into your house yet? So we still use these ideas. Um, so to Shabbat would be like, let's say you're going over to a friend's house and you two are going to go out tonight. Okay? To Shabbat would be as if you came in and politely sat on their couch waiting for them to come down. To nuach would be to go over to the thermostat, kick it up a couple of degrees, go over to the fridge, take out a drink, go over to the couch, take off your shoes, kick up in the recliner, and start surfing Netflix, right? That would be to nuach, to settle. If you need to get kinesthetic about it, Shabbat, nuach, settle in, right? Shabbat, nuach, okay. So you've got it. And so both of those together is what it means to rest, and unfortunately, a lot of us stop at the idea of, I mean, yeah, we stop at the idea of stop, okay? But we don't, we actually take out the good part, the enjoy it, 
Start to enjoy the fruits of your labor. So Nuach is like, stop working on the car in your garage and actually take it out for a joyride. Okay? You can't Nuach until you Shabbated. And you got a Shabbat in order to Nuach, right? Okay. So that's the, basically how they work. So those are the kind of two facets of what it means to rest. Stop and settle. Rest, spread out, enjoy. Now, I'm actually going to kind of go off your outline here. I'm going to go off the reservation just for a second. I want to give you a third way to understand rest, and that's in this idea of contrast between rest and labor. Okay? So just like you're painting a picture, the background needs to be labor so that you can get to rest in the foreground. Okay? And to do that, I want to take us to the Garden of Eden. So in the Garden of Eden... God set up this wonderful place, this perfect place where the land is just blessing us hand over foot, right? It's not working against us. It's working for us. It's trying to bless us, okay? It's like walking through the main thoroughfare in Stonebriar Mall, okay? You got those little kiosks in the middle, and they're like, hey, can I give you a free sample of this? Can I give you a free sample of cologne? Can I curl your hair? Can I straighten your hair? Can I shine your shoes? Have you want a free printed T-shirt? And by the end, you're just like, okay, just look down. Don't make eye contact. Just, just go, okay? Right? And so that's sort of like what the Garden of Eden was. That was their work. It was organizing God's blessings, right? It's sort of like kids organizing their Halloween candy. You know, that was their work. Okay, now after the fall, the tables turned. And God says, no, now instead of the land trying to bless you, I'm actually gonna have the land work against you. So it's not gonna be a downhill battle. It's gonna be an uphill battle. From the sweat of your brow, you will eat bread out of the earth all the days of your life. Okay, so now they're introduced these active agents that are working against us. It's like raising children, right? There's those, never mind. Okay. So, um, and so I, I remember one time I was, um, I was a senior in high school playing a football game. I was outside linebacker, and a buddy of mine was inside linebacker, okay? He's a bit bigger, about 40 pounds heavier than me, and the play came inside, and he shot the gap, and he just got laid out, okay? So he's on his back, concussion, the whole nine yards. Uh, they take him off the field, and I remember looking over about 10 minutes later, and this guy um, was being held down by two trainers and a coach. And he was just like, I must go. Ugh. He was just trying to break their hold to go out onto the field and fight something, okay? His, his brain got stuck in fight mode, you know, fight or flight. And so he was just going, and the trainers were like, no, 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 look, Nick, stop, look at me. Calm down, sit down, but he couldn't. He, he, was just, he was just so wired. And that's sort of the mentality that, that we've kind of found ourselves in, that God made us to labor. It's work, it's hard, but he says, but I'm not gonna leave you there forever. I need you to stop. I need you to rest. You'll look up, you work, you stop, and you rest. And we're gonna see that that pattern is gonna follow in so many different ways throughout the scriptures, okay? So there's the basic groundwork. You got Shabbat, stop, Nuach, settle, and then contrast that to labor. Of It's supposed to be this uphill battle of work, but you're supposed to stop and rest. So you disengage from that. Does that make sense? You disengage from the concept of labor for a little bit. Now, um, let's go into our next question. Our next question says, well, where do we see rest? Okay, so we're going to look at the very first instance where rest comes into play, and that's on page one of your Bibles, okay, unless you need the <clears throat> big print and then it's probably on page two or three. That's okay, you don't have to turn very far. So we're gonna be in Genesis chapter two, verses one through three. Um, the very first place we see rest is in God himself. Genesis two says this, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. 
By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, these verses are really, really important because they're going to serve as that baseline, the template, the framework from how we're supposed to understand basically the rest of human history, okay? So here's the pattern. Here's the, the paradigm. God brings order and harmony out of chaos and darkness, and then when he's done, he rests, okay? So if you're familiar with the Genesis account, you know that days one through six are about God creating this entire universe and settling them, nuaking them is the verb in Hebrew, nuaking them inside this garden, settling them inside this garden where he and his humans can nuak together. But we blow it, right? Um, And then we're exiled from the garden. And the rest of human history is basically the story of how God is gonna come and take us, grab us, rescue us, and get us back to the garden, okay? That's human history in a nutshell. We got exiled, and now we're getting brought back. Um, Now, the Exodus account um, is going to tell the same story. It's going to use the same themes and motifs in a different way, except this time it's within a microcosm of Eden. I'm not Eden, Israel. It's going to take Israel out of their chaos and darkness in Egypt. He's going to extract them, take them to a land flowing with milk and honey, an Eden. But they blow it too, and they end up having to wander the wilderness for 40 years. But even then, God still brought a miniature Eden with them, the tabernacle, okay? The tabernacle is a, is a huge key theme that I want us to hold on to throughout the rest of this message because the tabernacle represents the resting presence of God, just like in the garden. But now it's secluded. We're not allowed to come in. It's in this small inner sanctum, this holy place, lit by a little representation of the tree of life, a menorah, candlestick of seven branches whose flame is to never go out. The tree of life. God brought the garden with them. He was taking his seventh day rest to them, with them, following them, even through their rebellion and leading them back to the garden. So that's the first place we see rest. We see rest in God himself. Now, he also wired this idea of rest into all of his creation, okay? Specifically, the next place we see his rest is in us as well as the animal kingdom. Now, we've all heard crazy stories about how animals sleep. You have one side of the spectrum where there's like giraffes and elephants. They only need like an hour of sleep a night, right? Something crazy like that. Dolphins like put hemispheres of their brain to sleep one at a time, never going to sleep. I've never understood how that would work, but apparently they do. That's why you see dolphins like with one eye closed. It's because their left side's asleep right now. And it's like, isn't that weird? Can you imagine that? Anyway. um, And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have like my cat who needs... 23.9 hours of sleep a night, and then wakes up, takes a lap around the house, and then goes back and starts it all over again, right? Now, where did he put, some of you, I see, like, yep, I got that lazy cat. I could give you a run for your money. Um, He put human, God put humans right there in the middle of the spectrum. We need about eight hours of sleep a night, okay? That's a third of our lives. If you've ever kind of put that, think of the fraction, like 24 hours a day, a third of our lives is spent in sleep. And it's not like it's an optional thing. It's like we have to get sleep or really bad things happen. Um, There's a story of 1959. There's a radio DJ named Peter Tripp. And Peter Tripp thought he would do this eight-day wake-a-thon. Doesn't that sound like a great idea? A -a wake-a-thon for eight days in the middle of Times Square to raise money for the March of Dimes. What could go wrong, 
right? So he set up this thing, radio execs and scientists, everyone was on board. The scientists loved it because they were getting hard data out of it. The radio execs loved it because they were getting publicity out of it. Win-win, right? Except for Peter Tripp. So he goes and he's DJing and everything's going fine until about day three. Day three is when his personality started to change. He started cussing out the people that were walking around the glass. He started thinking that the scientists that were observing him were his undertakers. He started seeing spiders crawling in and out of his shoes. His dreams were encroaching into his waking world. Okay? They even brought his barber in as a publicity stunt, who'd been cutting his hair for 20 years. He said such vile and hateful things to him that the barber left crying and never spoke to him again. At the end of the eight days, he didn't recognize his wife. That's, that's already a pretty bad point. And he actually believed himself to be an imposter of the real Peter Tripp rather than his actual self. Okay? A short time later, he was divorced, jobless, and even his best friends say he was never really the same after that. So we need sleep. Without it, bad things happen. Now, the next place we see God's rest is inside plants. That might sound really kind of corny, but it's really cool, I promise. Okay, we're in the fall season right now, and we're seeing a lot of beautiful trees in their full splendor. Have y'all been down Coit this last week, over here between the highway and here? Um, you got those pepper trees right in the middle, and they're just out in the yellows and oranges and reds. It's beautiful, right? And it's really tempting for us to think that after they lose their leaves, they go like hypothermic, right? Like we do, you know, we get too cold, our body stops sending out blood to our fingers and toes and nose, and we get frostbite and all that sort of stuff. That's not what trees do, okay? Scientists actually say that fall and winter are necessary seasons for the trees for healthy growth and coolness, maturity, right? They say that fall and winter are seasons for the roots, for trees. So instead of pushing out leaves and green and all those things, it takes all that chlorophyll, brings it in, and it pushes that energy down into the roots, okay? And God has sort of planted that same idea inside Sabbath inside rest. He goes, I don't want you to just push out and produce and go and go and go and go. I need you to stop and put down roots. Go deep. Fall, winter, Sabbath are seasons for the roots. It's not for pushing out and productivity. Stop and go deep. Okay? Now, speaking of Sabbath, that's going to bring us to the final place we kind of see God's rest in his creation and that's this, he put it in the heavens, in the sun, in the moon, in the stars. Now, I know some of you are like, stop, Rob, right there. The sun and moon and stars do not Shabbat, they don't Nuach, or whatever word you're saying, they are constant. They just keep going. It's like clockwork. Now it's like, aha, you're right. It is like clockwork. Look at Genesis 1.14 with me. It says, and God said, let there be light in the vaults of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times, days, and years. So, why did God make the sun and moon and stars? Why does the sun go down? Why does it come up? It shows us when to rest, right? What's the text say? It says, let it serve as signs. Signs to what? Now, the NIV, we have the word sacred times, and that's, that's actually good. Other translations have things like seasons and things like that. That's not, that's not where we're going. The word is actually for congregating, for gathering. It's, in other words, the festivals. The sun and the moon and the stars show you when to party, okay? That's the... Rob version, okay? They show you when to rest, and they show you when to party. So you look at a Rolex, and you say, nice watch. God put the universe up on display for us. We live in a convertible. The top is down. We look up. It's like, wow, that's a nice watch, right? Okay, so 
I know most of you didn't come this morning expecting to get a crash course in the Jewish calendar, but trust me, um, the God's calendar and the way he has organized the festivals is like a fractal of beauty. It's got this same, have you ever seen a fractal before? It's not just a line from Frozen, I promise, okay? Yeah, I hear you young parents out there. You heard that word. You're like, what is that? I think it was just me alone on my couch on some like Friday night in front of PBS, and I was like, there's a program on fractals, right? Um, what it is, is a geometric shape that no matter how much you zoom out or zoom in, it retains its same shape, okay? That's how scientists are trying to figure out how snowflakes are made, like how it knows to go into those designs, those patterns, how um, the, the veins inside leaves, like what, what governs when the leaves are supposed, or when the veins are supposed to branch off, okay? It's like a geometric mathematical equation, a pattern that repeats itself no matter how big or how small you go. So that picture right there, if you notice all the little circles underneath it, those are the same exact shape. And then, so this could be on a universal scale, or you could also be looking through a microscope. It's the same shape. Does that make sense? And what we're gonna see is God has done the same thing with his calendar. He has built this idea of rest from the very small to the very big. So, we've already seen how the sun and the moon kind of give us that daily cycle of rest and wakey, right? Let's zoom out one level, and we're gonna go to the week, okay? God's command for the week or the Sabbath day. Look with me in Exodus chapter 20 at the giving of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male, your female servant, your cattle, or the sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, there's two things I want us to take away from that verse. The first is that we're in the Ten Commandments, okay? If you were going to sculpt a society and have ten rules to keep them in place, would make sure that you take a day of rest be in your top ten? Okay, I know it wouldn't on mine. This is in the same list as don't kill. Bad idea. Take your rest. It's in the same, you don't have any other gods before me. And also, this, this verse also has like a whole commentary that goes with it. You notice that passage was pretty long. That's the longest commandment in the Ten Commandments. Everything else is like, do not kill, check, next. Do not steal, check, next. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. And it gives all this explanation, okay? Nothing else does that. The second thing I want us to notice about this verse, it says the Sabbath is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. Some of your translations have to the Lord your God. And what's the point there? It means... It's, it's possession, okay? It's a Sabbath belonging to the Lord your God. Now, why does that matter? It matters because that means that Sabbath does not belong to us, okay? It consistently reminds us. It breaks into our week and inconveniences us over and over and reminds us that our time is not our own, that the universe does not revolve around our to-do lists, that our labor is not the deciding factor of God's blessing or success. It's Sabbath is God's time. And he says, stop. Sabbath makes us practice letting go of our time and giving it to the God who owns all time. Okay? For those of you who've ever heard of the Screw Tape Letters, um, it's a book by C.S. Lewis. Um, and it's about a senior demon named Screw Tape who is giving advice to his nephew, Wormwood, sort of a junior demon, on how best to destroy a Christian. Now, Wormwood has just been given this new Christian assignment, and he is really excited about how he's going to destroy his life, 
Okay? And in this, in letter 21, Screwtape says, if you can get them to think of time as their own possession, your work is so much easier. That way, whenever God needs their time, or as they say, the enemy needs their time, whenever they get a knock on their door on Friday night and someone needs ministry, they can think, oh, they're taking up so much of my time. Right? And if you can get them to think that time is their possession, you've got it. And then once you get that, I want you to transpose that, cut, copy, and paste into every part of their life. Let them think that way about their body, that this is my body and my choices, and these are my sexual morals, and these are my choices, right? And then their time, their bodies, their souls, this is my morality. This is, if you get them to think about if it's theirs, you've got it. And of course, he ends the letter, he says, but the true joke is on the humans, because they will soon find out to whom their bodies, their souls, and their time truly belong. Okay? So the Sabbath day is like this sacred time. Okay? It's like a cathedral in time. This church, this building, is a sacred space in space, right? Dedicated to God's worship. The Sabbath is a sacred time inside time a cathedral in time to honor the God who owns all time. Now, let's go ahead and zoom out one more level, and we're going to be in the Jewish year. Now, surprise, guess how many festivals there are? How many do you guess? Seven, and you would be right. Okay, seven festivals, and it's the seventh festival that I really want to kind of zoom in on. So um, I'm going to take you through the festivals really quick. Don't worry, this is not on the test, but I just want to kind of give you an idea so at that seventh one we can really understand what's going on. So, Seven festivals, you have a clump of three, a midpoint, and a clump of three, okay? It's kind of like Thanksgiving and Christmas, how they come like kind of stacked together. It's the same, same way. So first we have Passover, okay? This is where we're in Easter time. Passover, that intros, that prepares the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's where they commemorated getting out of Egypt, right? God leading them. And inside that is also the Feast of First Fruits. That's where they give their crops to God and praying that God will provide the rest. So there's your three. And then you have seven cycles of seven, Seven weeks, and then you get to the Feast of Weeks, okay? Lots of sevens in here. Um, It's hard to kind of keep them straight. And then we go over into the fall season, and there's our last clump of three, okay? And that is, it starts off with the Feast of Trumpets that brings in the fall harvest. We have the Day of Atonement, 10 days later. It's the highest day of the Jewish year. That's where the high priest goes inside the Holy of Holies, that place that's forbidden one time a year. The high priest can come in, And he sees the Ark of the Covenant, and he covers it over with blood. Now, you say, like, that's kind of gross, Rob. Why why, why all this, this blood imagery? Well, inside the Ark of the Covenant are three reminders of Israel's sin. There's a copy of the Ten Commandments. They couldn't even, God couldn't even get those on stone before we were already breaking them all, right? Um, There's a jar of manna to remind them of the grumbling, and there's also um, Aaron's budding rod, right, to remind them of their dispute of leadership. And so there's all these reminders of sin and separation. And the high priest goes in once a year and he pours blood over it. So now it's like opaque to God. He doesn't see the sin anymore. He doesn't see the reminders of sin. He sees that it's covered for now. But that blood's going to dry up. It's going to flake off. And next year, he's going to have to come in and put more blood over it to keep it covered. It sort of forestalls God's holiness, forestalls God's judgment on sin. Okay? So that's the sixth day. Ironically, it's the sixth festival that atones for the sins of man who was created on the sixth day, right? Okay, on the seventh day, God rested. On the seventh festival, we have what's called the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's not just one day, it's a feast that is bookended by Sabbaths. And every day in between are Sabbaths. It is a full cycle 
of Sabbaths. And on this day, what they do, or on this week, rather, they go down to a river, and they're told to cut the branch off of a river tree, a leafy tree. You see the Garden of Eden imagery already, the tree of life, okay? And they take that inside a tent, inside a tabernacle, and they live there for seven days. So do you see what's happening? They've been brought back inside the presence of God, inside the tabernacle, once again with a representation of the tree of life. It is them, God, bringing them back to the garden, a full cycle of seven, okay? Now, these next two levels I'm gonna go over really quickly. So we're kind of zoomed out one level each time at this fractal. Um, the, the next one is a seven-year sabbatical for the land. Look with me quickly at Exodus 23, 10, 11. It says, six years you're going to sow your fields and harvest your crops, but during the seventh year you let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it. The wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Now, what's this saying? It's saying every seventh year you get a break. You work for six years, and on the seventh, let the land lie fallow. And you're going to have to trust that while you're resting, God is working. And so he will bring up the harvest out of the field. He will have enough for you, he'll have enough for the poor, and he'll have enough for the wild animals. It's this picture of, I'm going to bring Eden back in these little pictures. You just have to trust me and wait for it. Okay? So then after that seven-year Sabbath year, let's zoom out to our last level. Our last level is not just seven years, but seven times seven years. So after seven cycles of seven, look with me in Leviticus 23.10. It says, consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family, property, and to your own clan. So after the seven sabbatical years, everything resets back to the way God intended it. The, so if you hit hard times financially and you had to sell yourself into indentured servitude, it wasn't a permanent thing. Okay, after the 50 years, he said, nope, debts are cleared, slates are cleared, everything is forgiven, everyone go back to your families. It's a big reset button on God's, God's years. So the 50th year, God hits the reset and says, I'm going to come and I'm going to wipe everything clean. Everything starts over. So it keeps us from getting too far afield, right? And so that is the basic shape of this huge fractal of God's calendar, Okay, so we have the sun and moon on the days. We have the six days, seventh day rest. We have the year, six festivals. The seventh festival is a festival of rest. We have the, where am I at? I'm in the seven years, right? Seven years, there's six years and the land gets a sabbatical. And then seven times seven, 50 years is a year of jubilee. When Jesus stood up in the temple the first time and read the scriptures, you know what he quoted? Isaiah 61, which he said, he, pro- he read about the year of jubilee of the reset, and he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your ears. Christ read about the Jubilee, the time. So God has put his rest everywhere, and that will lead us to our, one of our last questions, and that's why. Why has God gone through such extraordinary lengths to bend over backwards and make sure that we rest? And the first reason that I think is I think God gave us the structure to help us be like him. If we are his representatives here on earth, That means that he rested not because he was tired and had a really long, hard week and just needed a day on the couch. That wasn't why God rested. He rested to give us a pattern. We rest because God rested. Does that make sense? Now, once again, I wanted to look at Exodus 20.10. This is in the Ten Commandments. But the seventh day is a Sabbath belonging to the Lord your God for 
and I want you to focus on that word for. For means because. Because in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. So we rest because God rested. Now, second, I think we rest because we are not slaves anymore. We rest because we are free. We're not slaves to our work. We're not slaves to our sin. We're not slaves to our to-do list. We don't have to just like that football player, like, must labor, must work. We can rest because we're not slaves. We are free, and so we can take that rest. Look with me in Deuteronomy 5, verses 14 and 15. It says, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. I'll read this quickly. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor a lot of people. Okay, skip with me down to verse 15. (laughs) Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath. He says, you keep the Sabbath and you rest and you release because God released you. Because you were once slaves and you were let go. So you will do the same to others. So that's why we rest. It's because God's blessings roll downhill. We are blessed so that we might bless others. God blessed Abraham so that he might be a blessing to all nations, right? And so, but that, that also, that knife cuts both ways. Because we are blessed and that blessing trickles down, we are cursed and that curse trickles down, right? Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and that is why we have all the junk that we have. It trickles down. It is like a snowball rolling down a mountain, right? Um, And so God says, no, I'm gonna give you Sabbath, and that Sabbath is gonna affect everything under you. It's gonna affect the servants in your house. It's gonna affect your daughter, your cattle. It's gonna affect everything underneath your authority gets my blessings too. Now, lastly, I think we rest because it is an offering. Now, I know that might sound weird. Um, and it's not like I'm saying, like, God, I want to dedicate this nap to you. I'm really tired. I'm going to dedicate my sleep in. I'm not going to get up till noon. And I just want to give it to you as an offering. Amen. And that's not really what I'm saying, but in a way it is what I'm saying. Okay? Because as weird as that is, rest is saying something. Rest is saying, I know the one who owns my body. I know the one who designed it. I know what he intended. I know the one who owns my soul. I know the one who owns my time. I know the one who owns my resources. I know who the one who really provides is. And so our rest is a demonstration that our faith is that it is God that provides and not us. So at this time, we're going to do something a little bit different, and we're going to go ahead and take up the offering And so ushers, as you come down and prepare to take up offering, I just want to invite you at this time, if God leads you to put anything in that basket as it comes by, I want to invite you to do this. Take some time and set it aside in your hearts. Set it aside in your minds. Just like we take this time here on Sunday morning, we've taken this time and we have dedicated it and set it aside. Take whatever that you're going to put in that basket. Set it aside in your mind and heart and say, God, I know who owns my resources and it's you And so I want to do this and give a portion of that back to you the same way that I give my time back to you, my resources, my body, my soul, everything. We are stewards. We are stewards of ourselves. So, and just like God, how he blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy, I would like to do the same thing. I want to pray over our offering that God would take it, make it holy his for his purposes, and he will multiply seven loaves and two fish into whatever he desires. So will you pray with me? Um, God, I want to just take a time and come before you during this time of offering. 
that we could take this offering, that you could take this offering and multiply it before us. Multiply it for us and maybe use for your service and your will for your things, for this is your money and your kingdom, and we serve you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Ushers, if you'll go ahead and pass out the offering. Now, as the offering baskets are going back, I want to ask us a final question. What is all of this pointing towards? Are you saying, Rob, that I should now be Old Testament observant and that I should observe a Sabbath every seven days? No, I'm not. Because here's the short of it. The regulations that dictated Sabbath are over, but the rhythm is still in place. Does that make sense? So that means I'm not going to tell you how to practice Sabbath in your life. What I'm going to do is I'm going to open up the deeper meaning of Sabbath. And you can decide how to take that meaning and incorporate it into your own lives. And this was actually a legit issue in the first century church. So you had Jews that had converted to Christianity, and you had the Gentiles who were coming into the same body. And they were like, hey, these guys are like celebrating Sabbath, and they're doing all this stuff. Should we be doing that too? That's a, that's a legitimate question. And some of the Jews were like, heck yes, you should be observing Sabbath. This is what we do. This is what marks the people of God. Some of them were like, eh, it's not really important, but if you want to, you know, knock yourself out. And Paul came in in Colossians 2 in his usual fashion, guns blazing, right? And he says in Colossians 2, he says, no, 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 no. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat, by what you drink, with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, a Sabbath day. Those are the shadows of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Jesus Christ. So all of this Sabbath stuff, all this Sabbath is a shadow of what Jesus was in reality. Jesus would say later in Mark 2, 27 and 28, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. See, the Pharisees were always trying to convict him that he was breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus was always pushing the boundaries. Jesus got in a lot of trouble on Sabbaths, okay? Um, and so he says this in Mark 2.27. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus is trying to say, listen, on Sabbath you rest and you have faith that God is working, right? Okay, well, my Father is working on the Sabbath, and so I'm working on the Sabbath. And I'll just let you connect the dots as to what that means, okay? You rest, I'm working. And the Pharisees are like, what did did he just say, what, that, no, he didn't mean, oh, we got to do something about this. Because he was declaring God as his father, and that he was declaring himself as God, as it's okay for me to work on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is time for God to work, okay? That's why he was like, what's easier, to have his hammock, take up his bed and walk, or have your sins be forgiven? He did a lot of healing on the Sabbath days, okay? He's like, because that's my day to work, okay? Um. In other words, Jesus is saying, I invented rest, son. He's saying, day seven, Genesis two, that was me. I was the one kicking back and resting. He goes, come to me for rest, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give rest to your souls. Come and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I will give you rest. That's what he's going towards. Jesus Christ is our rest and our Sabbath. Now in a moment, we're gonna take communion together. And like the Israelites, we're going to stop and remember. See, because the Lord's Supper came out of the Feast of Passover that we mentioned earlier. And the Feast of Passover was preparing to, it was the symbolic reenactment of their flight out of Egypt. Okay? 
And so just as the Israelites would look back and see how God in his mighty power and his outstretched arm took them out of Egypt, took them out of their slavery and bondage, the Lord's Supper now, we do the same thing. We look back at Jesus Christ. We look back at the cross and we look back how he took us out of our sin and our self and our bondage and gave us freedom. So he says that we're gonna stop and remember how he set us free. And he took, and during this feast, he took the third cup, the cup of redemption, and he says, this is no longer gonna be a cup that symbolizes the blood of the lamb that you spread over your doorposts. He goes, this cup is now gonna be a new covenant in my blood. And I'm gonna take this blood into the very throne room of God, into the holy temple, and I'm gonna see that Ark of the Covenant there, and I'm gonna pour my blood over it. I'm not gonna see your sin anymore. I will cover it over once and for all. No more bulls, no more goats, no more lambs. It will be my blood, a perfect blood, once and for all, to cover the sins of all time. And then I'm gonna walk out of that room, and I'm gonna tear that veil down from top to bottom, because no more is this inner sanctum gonna separate you from my presence? No more are you separated from the presence of a holy God. I will tear that veil down. There is no separation. All walls are down, and where after your sin is removed as far as from the east is from the west, then finally, 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 we can nuach together. We can rest together. So God, let that be. Let that be true in us today. After our sin is irreversibly covered, God is getting us back to the garden, that ultimate seventh day. Now a little treat inside that is if you go back into the Genesis 1 account, you notice that it says, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And the evening and the morning were the second day. Evening and morning, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. That word is conveniently missing from the seventh day. What is that saying? It's saying the seventh day has no end, that God worked the first and second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and then sends us out into a cycle of Sabbaths, a Sabbath that never ends, the ultimate seventh day. So I invite us, church, right now, let's go ahead and stop and let's remember what Christ has done for us, what he's now doing in us, and the glorious rest that he is bringing us towards. Ushers, if you'll pass out the elements of communion now. So I just wanna invite us to take this time to stop, reflect, get alone before God as we declare ourselves one with him and he one with us. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread and when he had broken it and given thanks, he said, this is my body, which is for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together. Holy God, we come before you as unworthy. Just like the Israelites cannot claim any part 
in their deliverance of Egypt, that it was you and your power and your might and your hand that brought them out of Egypt, that led them through the wilderness through a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud, that it was you who gave the manna from heaven. It was you who were taking us and leading us back to the garden. In the same way we stand in awe of what you have done, that you have taken us from point A to point B, that you have taken us out of our sin in our darkness, our chaos, and our slavery, and you have purchased us with your own blood. And that you even now, your Holy Spirit inside us is working on us and sanctifying us and making us more like yourself. And we know that it's only six days inside that time. And that you who began a good work will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. And that one day we will know you as we are known. One day we will see you for who you truly are. We thank you, God. And we take this communion, we take this cup and bread as grateful recipients of your grace and what you have done for us. So Father, we pray that you will use us. Use us in this time. Use us in this rest. Use us throughout these holidays. Show us where you desire for us to stop and grow roots. And that we would stop focusing out and being slaves to our labor. Slaves to our do list. When you have said, you are not a slave. You are a prince or princess. You are a child of the king. Children of the king do not slave and slave and slave. That I have built nuach into your life. I have built rest and enjoyment and ruling and reigning into your future. So practice that even now. Stop laboring. Rest in me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Jesus, we remember your words. Because you will give rest to our souls. Pray, God, that you will take this time and use it for the building up of your kingdom, for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.